Yeah, that's the the Yukon Arctic Ultra. That was 430 miles. I think the race started out at about, um, I can only give you Celsius, at about minus 20. And I know at one point, at one of my lowest points in the whole race, and I know that it was minus 45 or colder. Welcome to the Hoyt Bowhunting Podcast. I am your host, Alan Bolin. And today I am honored to be talking with Greg McHale, who happens to also be a good friend of mine. Uh, Greg lives in Whitehorse, Yukon, and is an avid bow hunter, adventurer. I mean, you guys are, your minds are going to be blown when you find out all of the things Greg does today. And what he's done in the past. I mean, this guy has lived life to the fullest. Uh, absolute dream life. Like, insane. Greg, welcome to the show. Uh, Alan, thank you very much, my friend. Um, I appreciate that uh, that introduction. Well, and, we're going we're gonna to get into yeah, it, buddy. We got to yeah. back it up now. We got to back it up. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, that's easier said than done. <laughs> let's, let's start super simple, though. Like, t- so today... Um, you, you have a TV show, Greg McKell's Yukon Wild, excuse me, Wild Yukon, Greg McKell's Wild Yukon, and um, you're married with a couple kids. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into the dirty stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. living in the Yukon, I live in you know the wilderness at my back door, right? So I live in a place where hunting is you know everywhere. Yeah. And I moved from Ontario, Canada, to come out to the Yukon. Um, yeah, my wife Denise. We have a number of businesses together. We've been we've been married for twenty two years, and and Denise is also like she has an incredible story too. Like we should talk a little bit about her. I mean, she's she she might be tougher than you are. Oh, I, she's totally tougher than me. She she yeah. has to deal with me. So right there. Well, there's that too. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, no, this like- woman has been on world class adventure racing teams travel the globe doing some of the toughest races on earth as you've done the same thing. But I mean, where you've both come from that background, that's pretty incredible. What a, what a power couple. Well, we've been, uh, we've been working at it together for a long time. In fact, Alan, we, uh, we went, we grew up in farm country in a, in a school from grade one to grade eight with 75 students. And oh, you guys grew up together. We were in grade one together. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So in the U S we call that first grade. Okay, so we call grade one. We met in we met in first grade, <laughs> um, but yeah, we went to separate uh, colleges. I went to college. Denise went to university, and then I went to university. We met up. We uh, we haven't been together since uh, since first <laughs> since grade that age, but certainly <laughs> university. Uh, we've been we after university we moved out west together, and yeah. um, the rest is history. But yes, you're right. My wife is an amazing athlete, and she's becoming a hell of a hunter too. Yeah, no, I know she killed a dandy ram this year. Uh, we'll we'll get into that, but that's so so. You, today though, you you literally and I I've I've said this a few times as a joke. Man, if there's anybody that I could trade places with in life, it'd be Greg McHale. Like this guy lives in the Yukon, hunts nearly full time, owns two planes, two bush planes, like flies all over, like unbelievable sort of like you're scouting, you're flying, you're hiking, you're running, you're just like your life centers around hunting and performance 
flying. Like that's pretty incredible, Greg. Yeah, I guess you know, Alan. When you when you sit back and you you take a look at it like that, I'm I know that I'm very extremely fortunate. Um, I've been, you know, I have a I have an amazing family. I live in a great place. I do exactly what I want to do. Um, not always when I want to do it because you know we all live. Uh, you it 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 certainly looks looks glamorous and it looks, <laughs> but I mean it's work. And no, you know it, right. and I know it. Whenever that's you own right. businesses and these kind of things, it's uh, it's a lot of work. And um, I love my life. I wouldn't change change a thing about it. Good, bad, the failures, everything. Um, and yeah, I just uh, just try to keep motivated and keep uh, keep moving forward every day. Well, you always have a humble way of uh, of talking about your life because it is it is pretty incredible. But I appreciate that, and I know. It is a lot, it looks glamorous, but it's a lot of work for sure. Um, so I would like, Greg, I would love to dig a little bit into your history in adventure racing. Um, we're, we're definitely going to get to bow hunting. We're going to get to sheep hunting. We're going to get to all of that. But I think to like really understand Greg McHale, you have to understand the adventure racing because it was such a big part of your life. And I mean, you were, you were essentially professional at one point, right? I mean, that's what you did. You, and, and okay, let's back up. What is adventure racing? Okay. Yeah. Um, adventure racing, Alan is in my opinion, and I may be, may be biased because I hear this gets thrown around a bit, but I believe that adventure racing is the most difficult sport in the world. Um, and the reason I say that is adventure racing is comprised of mainly four disciplines, which is biking, like cycling, mountain biking, running, trekking, paddling, whether it's canoe, kayak, uh, pack raft, and then some sort of ropes like uh, ascending, descending, big walls, stuff like that. So oh, wow. the, the sport is based on adventure, um, navigation, and human power. So the sport that we did, the types of races that we did and that we excelled at were what they call expedition style. So 400 to 1000 kilometer races. Oh, wow. So these are multi, multi-day races, multi-day races. And yeah. so how the sport works is the night before the event. And we traveled all over the world to, to do these races the night before the event. Typically you get a set of maps and you get checkpoints, you get UTM coordinates. Okay. So you have to plot your checkpoints on that map and you have, you know, eight, 10 hours to do it. And you're using a compass or a GPS? Everything is map and compass. Map and compass. Okay. So it's, it's uh, true navigation. No, okay. um, so you show up in, in some town in the mountains somewhere because you know that's where the race starts and you may have studied what you can about the topography but you have no idea what direction you're heading or anything you show up they give you a map and it has like some points on the map that you have to go and what touch each of these points so they they generally they give you the map and then they give you the coordinates and you have to plot your own points okay so if, okay so if you if you before the race even starts if you mess up on a coordinate oh wow and you mess You've one lost. number up You've lost you before be, it even starts. That's right. Oh my gosh, that's some pressure. So, so you have to do all of this 
before the race starts. And generally speaking, you're up all night plotting the points and you don't get any sleep before the race starts. Oh my gosh. So yeah. the, they, they try, and <laughs> a lot of races, they've tried to sleep deprive you before the event starts because they know that you're going to be sleep deprived because yeah. we generally do about 125 kilometers a day if you in distance. And yeah. So maybe it, is that is that about 75 miles? Yeah. Um, 80 miles? Somewhere around there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and that's if you take that's a lot of miles consideration the running the yeah. paddling and the biking so that's can you decide what you do where like like is are there certain sections like you have to bike here that's you right you have so, to paddle here you have to run here you have to climb here so they give you in the utms they'll give you a transition area so okay. you'll go from running to biking and they will they will move your bikes to that location then you'll pick up your bikes Often you build your bikes because they transport them in boxes. So at, at the end of every transition oh, wow. or at the end of every bike section, you must dismantle your bike, put it into a box and load it, you know, put it onto a truck so that they can then move it to the next location. So wow. there's, yeah, you got to be a mechanic, a, a, a navigator, a, yeah, all of this the navigation pieces I think I've heard is very important, but I, but not to like the physicality of like, you have to move 125 kilometers a day, whether you're rowing, running, biking, or climbing, you are moving your body and there's a team, right? There is there, is it a four, four person team? Yeah. The main, the, I guess the, the main embodiment of the sport is, is a team and it's always comprised of three people of one sex it has to be it has to be a mix so generally speaking the best teams in the world have three guys and a girl okay and when we're but you, know, could the, you go two and two two men yeah, two women absolutely okay can. but at least one woman i see yeah and yeah. at least one man that's right okay so when we're competing at the highest level that's generally how it uh how it goes um yeah it's it's you start that race and your race doesn't end until you cross the finish line or uh, one of your, or one of your teammates, you know, drops out. And as soon as one teammate drops out, you're done. So Everybody what's the range of time it takes? Race. Is it like three to five days or? Yeah, generally three, um, three to six, eight days, depending on the train. Like, yeah. um, some races in like Mongolia are, generally speaking are a little bit faster because the terrain is more open, but then you get to Australia and you get into, you know, dealing with flora and fauna that is, that uh, doesn't dictate a lot speed. Um, yeah. It really, it's the terrain jungle, gotcha. all these different things yeah. really make the difference. Well, when somebody says, you know, like I did so many miles on a hunt, the, the difference in like, whether you were on trails or, climbing over the top of mountains and crossing valleys, there's a massive difference when somebody yeah. says, I did 70 miles on that hunt or whatever. I mean, yeah. the, the, the definition of that is dramatically different, you know? So you were saying though, if one person on the team drops out, obviously it's over. So if you get one person who gets totally blistered up and just destroyed and just can't move forward, you, you have to pull the plug on the whole thing or carry that person. 
Exactly. And yeah. literally carry the, carry that person. We've, you've done you know, it. We've, had, we've, we've done it. We've got to the end of a race. We're in, actually we're in first place at the end. We had eight, I think it was about eight kilometers to go. And um, one of our teammates had an infection and he just, he just was ready to fold up shop. And we literally carried him to the end of that, oh, end of that my race. Goodness. Did you win it? Yeah. And we still won. You still so, won. That's like, incredible. Where was that race? Um, that was down in like Crow's Nest Pass down in Alberta. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. Where are some of the crazy places you've been doing these races? We've kind of been all over the world from, you know, Europe to Australia, New Zealand. I've heard that New Zealand China. is tough. Yeah. I would say that New Zealand, the Kiwis have um, the strongest adventure racing uh, country in the planet. Um, their environment is just so conducive to all year round training. Oh. Um, they, they really have embraced the sport They're The Kiwis are really outdoorsy, generally speaking anyways. Right. Um, they, and then they, they just thrive on, you know, look at their, for the size of that country, the athleticism that they produce is, is almost unmatched. So whether it's rugby or, you know, the the sports yeah, the outdoor yeah. sports in general triathlon um they're just they're tough they're really athletic people yeah yeah they absolutely are and they've got the they've got some of the best uh, adventurous racers in the world how how much time how many years did you live this life where like adventure racing was a a big part of your life yeah probably about i would say about 10 years um and then we took a few years off uh because uh, business and children. And then we went back for, for a year after that. So roughly though, about 10 years. So what year was that when you last competed? So 2016 was our last year where we went full time and we, you know, we went back at it hard. And so that's pretty recent. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine, Greg, it really is hard for me to imagine what that would be like traveling the world, doing these incredibly difficult races where you're like, I mean, people talk about, you know, running a marathon or whatever as a big challenge. I mean, you're, you're talking, you know, you're, you're doing races that are up to a thousand kilometers. Like that is unbelievable. And yeah, there's a team of four people, but every single one of those people has to finish the race. It's not like it's a relay. I mean, you're all going a thousand kilometers. That's amazing. I, I now, so I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've dabbled a little bit in ultra running and I've, I, I was reading an ultra running book and this guy's talking about you and your wife. Like it's in the book. Like, yeah, these adventure racers from the Yukon, this lady was on our, Denise was on our team. And I, I think it was Travis Macy. Yeah. Is that I think right? so. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, um, that, that's, that's an incredible, incredible, uh, life you guys lived. Do you recent, you did a race, um, one that caught my eye and I know this wasn't adventure racing, but you did this really long race in the middle of winter in the Yukon. W- what was that race called? Yeah, that's the, the Yukon Arctic ultra. Um, yeah. How long was that? That was 430 miles from 430 miles. In the middle of winter, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's so. What were the te- what were the temperatures? I think the race started out at about. Um, I can only give you Celsius at about minus twenty, and I know at one point um, 
when I was just, I was at, at one of my lowest points in the whole race. And I know that it was minus 45 or colder. Oh my gosh. That's unreal. That is unreal. 450 miles and you, you pulled a sled, right? So yeah, we had to, you had to be self-sufficient because, you know, when you're out there and something goes bad, <laughs> you yeah. need to be able to take care of yourself. Otherwise, so you have like a sleeping bag and a little shelter or something. Yeah. No shelter, but a, a sleeping bag, um, a stove. Yeah. Just enough to, you know, just enough to, to hopefully not freeze to death. Um, if oh something, ne- something bad happened and you needed to wait for somebody. I, I, I just like, I'm, this is, this is killing me. You're saying 450 miles in the middle of winter, Fourth, negative yeah. 20 to negative 40. And you're pulling a sled full of gear to keep you alive. And you have to go 450 miles. Four, oh my four gosh. 30, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's 430. 430. Seven, 700 kilometers. Okay. That's amazing, Greg. Um, truly, truly. So comparing that to ultra running, what was harder? <laughs> Excuse me. I, I meant I meant adventure racing. Yeah. Comparing that to adventure racing, what was harder? Yeah. Well, that event, um, that event itself, because it was solo, um, and I was out there like by myself for so long. It was eight days. It took me. It took me eight days. I thought that I could do a hundred. You're making that sound like a long time. I, I'm thinking that would take me a month. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it. I thought that it should only take me seven days, I, but the temperatures and um, there were a few checkpoints and I, actually the it got so cold that the one checkpoint was at the end of the race about probably, yeah, probably 600 kilometers into it. Um, there, the people couldn't get to build the checkpoint because their snowmobiles wouldn't start and they, they, and it wasn't there. Wow. So, wow. So, that's, so you just had to go right through it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I looked, I looked for it and, and couldn't find it and realized that at that point you were literally like you could die. Like, yeah. and I, I do not want to be dramatic cause I, I like, I'm not trying to be dramatic at all, but at that point in that race, I was so low on water and, um, you know, I, that checkpoint was not there. Um, I was running, I was running the fine, fine line and I had to, eventually I realized that that checkpoint was not there. And so was you not were going, planning on restocking water and food I was, that's at the exactly. checkpoint. I was, and, I was and it wasn't on, there. So you just had to do it. Said to keep going, but I had, I had been gone for 24 hours straight at that point, And this is six days in without sleep. So I knew I had to sleep. Um, I set up, I pulled out my sleeping bag and I laid in my, in my sled. Um, but it was so cold that I couldn't melt snow to get water because my stove, my ibuprofen, all butane stove froze up. So yeah. this, so this stove yeah. now no longer works. And I bring it into my sleeping bag to, to try to thaw it out. But in my state of, I guess, sleep deprivation, what I didn't do was I didn't turn it off. So I fell asleep in my sleeping bag and, you know, you've got a, a dime size hole 
that you're breathing out of. Yeah. And, and, and so everybody knows when, when you're in extremely cold weather, you cinch your sleeping bag completely almost shut and you breathe out of a tiny little hole. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm breathing out of, out of this hole at minus 45 or to 50 and sleep deprived. And now I've got my stove inside because I want to warm it up. And so, it's turned on. And I left it on. You could have died right there easily, easily. So I woke up to, you know, my sleeping bag being filled up with butane, ibuprofen all like just, Oh my goodness. And, and I'm just clawing my way out of this sleeping bag. It in these, in these temperatures. So anyways, I wake up and and that's great. (laughs) That's unbelievable. So then and I, were I you able to, to melt water then, or did you waste all the gas? Uh, no. So, so then I went to start it, start the stove up, obviously outside my sleeping bag. Um, huh. I, it fires up and it literally fired up for five seconds and then the liquid gelled again. Oh my gosh. So there's no access to water. So now I realize like, I mean, it's like you need to move because no one's coming. It's up to you. Like you need yeah. to move. You've got another 70 kilometers to the next town where that race ends and you need to get going. So I Which, guess, by the a- way, that's, that's like more than a marathon and, and you have to get there and it's in, you're pulling a sled and it's negative 45 and you're going through snow on uncut trails because there's no snowmobile to cut a trail. And you have to go like more than a marathon in these. And you've been going for 24 hours already. And you're short on water. Well, you've been going for six days, but 24 hours without sleep. Yeah. Like, that's unbelievable, Greg. Like, I can't even comprehend the level of sort of like mental toughness that would take. I guess that, yeah, to to really answer the question, the Arctic culture is the toughest race I've ever done. Um, based on those conditions, right? Yeah. Um, based on that, I, I don't know, like, like basically push to the brink of almost dying is pretty tough. That's amazing. What place did you come in at that race? By the way, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I, I won the race, but you won the race. <laughs> of course you did. It's, it's, it's more of a, more of a race of survival. Those, yeah. those type of events. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was challenging for sure. Oh my gosh, I really appreciate you sharing that. That like, I didn't know all those details. I knew a little bit that you had done this race. That's that's unreal. And so now, so now, I mean, does this make sheep hunting easy? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's you know, Alan. It's. Sheep hunting is, it's, it's all relative, right? Um, there, when you put yourself in difficult situations, you, you choose to challenge yourself. You choose these kind of things. Um, I think the difficulty is, is a mindset. Um, is sheep hunting easy now? The, 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 the real answer is yes. It, it absolutely wow. is easy now. Because when you put yourself beyond where you think that you can go, when you push yourself, whether it's physically in life, whether it's, you know, in 
trying to get a job, starting a business, when you do anything that gets you out of your comfort zone, that moves you, moves the, the needle forward and more than you thought you could, then the stuff that was hard is no longer hard. Right. And that's, and that's the thing about, about life, whether it's adventure racing, whether it's hunting, whether it's, you know, being, being a good father, being a good parent, being a good business person, whatever, if you are willing to put yourself in difficult places, then life just gets easier and yeah. you stress less about it. Yeah. Well, you're changing yourself. You're, you're, you're hardening your mind. You're, you're making yourself just more resilient and used to harder things. And, yeah. and then, yeah, it, you, you're changed forever. That's, that's pretty amazing. Absolutely incredible, actually. So, so you, you today, I mean, you spend a lot of time in the mountains. Like I know you've been on several sheep hunts this year. I mean, how many sheep hunts have you done this year? I mean, not, I know you haven't, you've, you've like, you took your wife and you took your dad and you've been on a couple yourself. So yeah, what are so, we talking? So we got five sheep hunts in, in uh, this month. So we're kind of, we're. That's unreal. Yeah. We're five for five, which is awesome. We're super, uh, everybody's happy. Yeah. You know, it's been some, some great hunts and um, yeah, it, I couldn't be, I couldn't be any more happy because last year, um, I, last year I never took a ram, Alan. Yeah. I, I had, uh, you know, many, many opportunities, but I was, you know, I had a goal, uh, that I was, that I was striving for, which didn't materialize. And right. I spent, I spent more time in the mountains and more, I worked harder last year for one to, to come up with no Ram than right. I have worked this year that, and have been fortunate enough to have five. So, <laughs> that's sometimes how it goes and you killed like a 12 year old ram this year right yeah i've killed uh a 12 year old and uh a stone sheep and then an 11 year old doll okay yeah. I, I hadn't heard about the results of your doll sheep hunt yeah that's yeah. that's awesome and you're one of the few guys on the planet i bet that i mean you, you have a couple of big bow rams don't you i have a couple couple good doll sheep um that are both uh, that I took with the bow. Yeah. Um, one of my, you know, actually it's one of the biggest Rams I've ever taken is, is with the bow. And uh, it was 20 years ago now, almost. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was, uh, well, that one's a, that one was, I mean, it's probably still a top 10 Ram in the world. It's like 165 or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it was four at the, at, you know, way back when I had don't know. So idea. when you shot, it was number four in the world. Yeah. I think 165 is still in the top 10, Greg. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. So I, I mean, I haven't looked, but yeah. I mean, that is a, a gigantic doll sheep, gigantic. People don't realize how hard it is to find 165 inch ramp. I mean, they're like, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I'd say the 170 mark is a unicorn and 165 yeah. is dang near. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's incredible. Um, and so you, I mean, so you just fly your planes around and drop in and you <laughs> go on five sheep hunts in one year. I mean, tell me that isn't an easy life. <laughs> it's I'm not an easy you. life. <laughs> I know. I know. No, I know. but it's, it's, it's awesome. Like I'm, I am so fortunate and I know it. 
Um, but that doesn't mean you take your foot off the throttle just because, yeah. just because you, you work hard. And I, and I think that, you know, if I, if I wasn't doing this, I would be, I'd be still chasing my dreams somewhere else. And I think that that's where I'm, you know, I'm just very fortunate to be in the situation I'm, I'm in, but uh, you know, when you leave, you leave your family behind 6,000 kilometers for the mountains and for the wild places um, at a, at a young age. um, Yeah. It's, it's not easy either. Right. So you have to make those tough decisions in life. And sometimes, uh, sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't, but it's, yeah, it's just, well, you're, you're obviously wired that way. Like you're, I mean, you, you spent 10 years or more adventure racing all over the globe. Like you said, chasing a dream, you know, and then like even to think you want to go and do a race in the middle of winter, that's 430 miles long. Like that, like, I don't even know, like, well, I do know actually, but it, it's, it takes a certain type of person to even think that way. And now that, that, that hunting and doing your TV show is your passion and your focus, you're not going to do it halfway. You're, you're going for the gold, right? And that's just <laughs> how you're wired, you know? And that's, and that's great. I mean, it's an, it's an inspiration. It really is truly an inspiration. That's why that's why I like associating with you because you're an inspiring guy and that's, you know. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, when, when you and I, when you and I hang out, there are a lot of similarities in, in attitude. We live, you know, we live different lifestyles, like not that different. Actually, I live a pretty soft life compared to you. I don't know, man. You you have you know you the business side. You hunt super hard. Like what you're doing in the archery world is, I don't know anybody else that's doing it. So when you and I get to sit down, you know, and have dinner together, and we you know we're shooting shooting it back and forth, there there are a lot of similarities, and uh, and I think that uh, if you were here, you'd probably be doing something super similar to me. <laughs> well, I actually, I could guarantee that Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. when I look at what you're doing, I think, Oh my gosh, Greg, he's got it figured out. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. So you have, um, you have, uh, an archery moose hunt coming up. Yeah. So I try to, uh, I try to take a moose every, every year. Um, I love, I love archery hunting for moose. It's, yeah. it's so much fun. The, we have some big bulls up here in the Yukon and um, some, yeah, it's that, and we're coming up here. So with sheep hunting yeah, season behind right. me, basically. The is rut, that the next thing you're looking forward to is the moose hunt? Yeah. The, the yep. rut will start here in another, you know, early rut in a week or so, kind of two weeks will be in into it. And yeah, that's pretty amazing. When you get out there and those, those bulls, I've never done, um, I've elk hunted, but not like you guys do like I've elk hunted up here one year cause I pulled a permit, but never really knew what I was doing. But I think anyone that elk hunts understands the, the feeling you get, you know, the hair stands up on the back of your neck when that bull, you know, is bugling same yes. thing with the moose, you know, you're calling moose and then that big bull rolls in and his eyes are, you know, rolled back in his head and it's his, amazing. His, 
he's just swaying back and forth and he's grunting and that those sounds that we as hunters get to experience um, as when, when you've done all the work, you've done all the homework, you put yourself in the right place. You've, and in my case, you know, whether I'm flying or whatever I'm doing, but you're back in these wild places and you see this, you know, 1800 pounds of muscle and, and, yeah. <laughs> and horn come walking through the bush and he's coming for you. Uh, it's, it's a pretty exciting time. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, I honestly, I, I haven't, I've killed a, I've killed one, I, but I, I haven't had those experiences like you have. I can't wait. In fact, you and I have been kicking around the idea of doing one together. We, uh, yeah. I think we're more than kicking it around. This yeah, is we're going to do it. We got to make this it. happen. And yeah. when, when it does for you, Alan, you'll like, you'll, you'll go, Oh man. Like, especially yeah. when you, you know, you put an arrow into one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they're an incredible, I've guided for several moose with a rifle, but, uh, yeah, anyway, I, the, the, the archery moose, it, it seems like they're kind of like elk. They're kind of made for it. They're kind of made yeah. for the bow, you know, because you can get them close, you can call them in. And there really is something special, you know, on a lot of my elk hunting hunting, I've switched away from calling because I feel like the giant, giant bulls I'm after are just not not as responsive and it's just easier to, to get them killed if you put the stock on and you get in the right place and all those things. So, but I miss that because it is so exciting. Like the, the, uh, the, the thrill of just hearing that, that, that guttural noise and then breaking branches and coming at you. And before you see him, all this anticipation building up, it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to getting into a bunch of moose hunting. I, you know, I mean, there's, there's three species of moose and I'm going to enjoy every one of them. There is. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I just so, want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm on the, the Alaska Yukon uh, one. Buddy, I'm, I am so looking forward to that. So do you like for your moose, uh, do you like to fly in for those as well? Um, I, I'm all over the board actually, uh, whether it's, whether it's using water, um, you know, fly into a lake and hunt lakes, get up high with, with machines, um, mm -hmm. or using rivers with like pack raft. Um, yep. so I, I really, wherever the big bulls are is where, where I'm looking to yep. be. And then I just figure out from there how to, how to make it happen. Do you, do you, um, like to, for example, um, glass hard to locate a big bull and then move in to call that bull? Or will you go down a river blind calling, hoping a big bull steps out, but you have no idea if there's a big bull there? How do, how do you approach it? Yeah, I've done both. Um, but I like, personally, I like to get high and I like to glass and then I like to call. So if I, what you, what you can find is that yeah, if you're glassing and you can spot a big bull, then you can call to him and see what the response is. If there is no response or he's got some cows and he's not going to leave those cows for you, then you have to go to him. Um, and I've also... So you're saying you might call from him while you're glassing, like you're, you're two miles away and you'll throw out a call to see what he does? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And, and or have, you know, you see he, if there's anything else that just steps out that will come yeah. to the call, right? Okay. So you're never, 
in the rut, you're never going to go wrong, in my opinion, by calling. Yeah. Um, now, having said that, I have watched big bulls push cows up away from the valley. Once he, once a big bull's got, you know, maybe three to six cows, he can push those out of the valley and right up into up into the mountains. Um, and that's the kind of bull that doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to, you're not going to pull it in by the call anyways. So, okay. Yeah. So you got to make another plan. If you want to go after that bull, you got to make another plan. Yeah. You're going to have to either, you know, go after it and get within its, you know, personal space. That's what I like to do is you get in a cow call, cow call, maybe get in that hundred yards or so, and then pull out a bull call and, is and grunt and he's has no choice okay. now you're in his personal space and he's got one choice and that's either well he's got two choices run away and try to push his cows away but that never works for him um or it's come out and fight you know and that's and what you're talking about there is those are the complexities that a bow hunter has to deal with and it's also the pleasure because you get the pleasure of calling in a moose but a rifle hunter, if he finds a bull that he wants to kill and and the bull's not callable, he stalks within 300 yards and he, and he blasts him. You know, yeah. the bow hunter has to be extra crafty, extra, you know, um, creative and figure out how am I going to get this bull within bow range, even though he's he right now he's not wanting to respond to calls. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the you know, the, the really thing that I enjoy about archery hunting for these moose is when they when you're in their personal space you have to it, it can go either way real quick and you have to be crafty as you said and like that's why that's yeah. why we do it right that's right man that is awesome um so i'm, I'm curious you know like th this lifestyle you live up there you know you're flying bush planes which you know that's a dangerous thing like there's there's no question that one of the most dangerous things we do as hunters is get into bush planes. You know, it's like, I, and honestly, you know, the other, one of the most dangerous things is climbing tree stands, but it's sometimes it's not what you think, you know, the most dangerous things, you know, are, are, you know, you think it might be a cliff or whatever, although those, those are not to be taken lightly either, but you know, it sounds like you've had some pretty gnarly stuff happen while adventure racing. Um, you know, like the story you told about, about the wintertime um, ultra run. Um, I'm curious in hunting, like living the life you live, what kind of, and I, and again, I don't mean to be dramatic in asking these questions, but I, I find it very interesting that you're living up there, you're hunting, you know, 60 to 90 days a year in the Yukon, you're, you're flying bush planes you're on snow machines in the middle of winter hunting bison crossing frozen rivers all this crazy stuff i know you do what what situations have you run into i mean can you think of a specific time where you felt you know like you're kind of like lucky to still be here um well there's yeah i know that i'm lucky to still be here um yeah aviation is definitely one of those things that uh, in the mountains, in the kind of terrain that we fly in and conditions that we fly in, um, it, it can, it can bite you if you're not on your A game at all times. And one of those, so there's two scenarios really that stand out, um, for me. 
one involves uh, a super cub. My when I was flying by myself, I was I was moving fuel into an area that I wanted to scout for sheep, and I was by myself. So I went to land at this at I don't a strip would be would be loose. Loosely yeah. used. Yeah. Okay. Um, was it was it a strip that you had landed at before? No, I had never landed at it before. I'd been at that at that lake before, but I'd never landed um, with the with. So wheel. it was your uh, first time land in yeah. a spot. Yeah, that's tough. So hot day, and in the Yukon, a hot day is like twenty seven degrees. Um. I don't know what that is in, uh, in Fahrenheit. I think that's low seventies. So, and at you know, in warm weather, which generally speaking, we don't get that that type of weather here in the Yukon. Bright sunny day, heavily loaded aircraft. Um, I went to put. I did you know? I did all the checks that that I would do. I did the flyovers, check and wind, and all of the things I thought that I had, had taken into consideration. So I set up uh, to land and I put put wheels down and this strip is sh- short like yeah it, it's short so you 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 need to be on your game and there can't be any real there can't there's not room for error right and I'm heavily loaded on a hot day which are two things that um, every pilot knows that is a detriment. So, and then altitude. So the, the strip was, I wouldn't say it was at high altitude, but um, when you put the, those factors together, they all contribute to uh, a potential incident. So you have like a higher stall speed based on all of those factors. So you have to come in hotter, all of that, right? Um, I don't know so much. You have the stall speed, it more, it's a performance of the aircraft. Okay. So, the aircraft is uh, maxed out in weight, so you're heavy. So you're it takes more horsepower, and you're going to generate less horse, less horse. You're going to generate less lift at the same given horsepower with added weight. So these are yeah, all yeah, factors yeah. in right, aviation, right. right? So so I get in there and um, I'm setting up to land. I put wheels down, and it was a you know about. 12 inches, nine inches of, it was kind of grassy. And I start to start to drift off because the, where I was going to land is kind of cambered from right to left. So it's not flat. Oh, that sounds like another little problem. (laughs) It's a, it's another small problem. Yeah. And so I put wheels down and I start to slide off the strip and I choose to abort the landing and go to, go to full throttle. Um, and in doing so, now I'm committed to flying out of here. I can't shut it down. I'm committed to flying out because I started to slide off into the and get willow um, toward the willows. So I, I'm now I'm full throttle. I'm back up in the air another like a couple feet, but now I've got bushes in my left oh wheel. Oh my gosh! So my left tire is just running over the tops of the willow, and I'm. I'm not get picking up speed. So I'm just, now I'm off the strip and I'm fully committed to flying out of here and I'm not gaining altitude. 
and straight ahead of me is this the timber is kind of sparse but straight in front of me is a pine tree and i i think i'm i'm gonna miss this pine tree and but i can't turn the plane i can't like bank to turn out you'll, of, out you'll of lose elevation yeah because i'm gonna stall the plane and i'm gonna crash and die so that, that like that's not an option i'm going so slow that i know that if any any turn of this plane i'm gonna lose lift in my in my wing and i'm going to stall the plane so i'm just trying to like i can see it as just like it happened and and Gosh. this tree, the top of this tree, I think I'm going to miss it. And I just, I miss it. I know I'm going to miss it with my prop, but it hits the strut. The top 12 inches of that tree hit the strut. And it was just enough to slow me down that much more. Um, so I slowly make this turn toward the, there's a, there's a lake. So I, and it's only about, I don't know, maybe 150 yards. So I slowly, I'm descending, but I'm slowly making this turn to the left toward this lake, hoping that I get over top of the lake, get in ground effect, and I could, yeah, I could fly out. Elevation, yeah. But I don't make the lake, and as as I'm into that turn, I'm I'm going, I'm going in. I'm not going to make the lake, and it just it's like slow motion. Um. So I, I crashed my plane on oh the edge God. of this lake. Um, but the saving grace here is that a super cub flies so slow. Yeah. Um, that, you know, when something like this happens, yeah, you can, generally speaking, you can walk away from it. You were, and, how fast do you think you're going? Like 30 knots oh, or 40 knots? Yeah, no, not even that fast. Not. No. Um, I've, the truth is I've fallen off my mountain bike harder. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but that's okay. So that's the start of it. You know, now I'm sitting in the middle of nowhere, like literally the middle of nowhere and 200, like it's 200 and some kilometers um, from the, from the nearest town. Wow. From the nearest road. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a hundred and whatever miles there, 120 Jeez, miles man. or whatever it yeah. is. Um, and, uh, I'm just like not hurt, which is amazing. My plane is definitely hurt. Yeah. My ego is definitely hurt. Um, but you know, is, uh, it's completely my fault. Like there is no one to blame, but me, I, I, allowed all of those factors which i should have known better right um to get uh, i allowed those things to happen and sometimes you know you you walk away from these things and some some people don't um i'm just fortunate that i did and you just got to make sure that you don't make those same mistakes again especially when it comes to aviation because you may never get a second chance well and and i guess you know you have a choice then too. You could say, well, what am I doing flying these planes? And you kind of move away from that because you, you know, you have like a, you, you know, your, your life flashes before your eyes sort of. Right. Um, 
or you, you know, you recommit, you practice more, you, you learn more, you maybe take more precautions and you're not quite as optimistic in every situation where you shouldn't be. And, and I think that's what you've done, right? I mean, you've been flying several years since then. And, yeah. uh, have you, have you gotten to be, become a better pilot since then? No, absolutely. I, I believe that I have. I'm not um, saying you were a bad pilot then. I didn't mean to, but no, I'm just saying well, I mean, you continue to improve, right? I mean, it's, it's arguable, like, you know, guys with a lot of, a lot more years than me would, uh, would say that that should have never happened. And I agree. It should have never happened. So, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not hiding behind the, the fact that, that I made, that I, something else, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to blame it on anything else except for what it actually was. And yeah. that was me. So, yeah, I think I'm a better pilot for it. I'm certainly more um, more cautious. And, um, you know, if you're not learning, if you're not continuing, whether it's archery, whether it's anything, yeah. you know, you, you make mistakes and you learn from them and hopefully you get better and you never make those mistakes again. And that's what uh, sometimes, you know, with aviation that those mistakes, when you make them, they... <laughs> They, uh, they have large consequences. Well, you know, Greg, I, that's a great point. And I think that there's a, there's a really nice analogy there to, to bring, you know, into life and into hunting and into archery uh, that there's ups and downs in life and, and hunting and everything else. And it's not, it's not a matter of like, you know, when you fall or how hard you fall, cause it's, it's definitely going to happen. It's, it's how you can get back up. I know you and I have talked, we both own businesses that were dramatically affected by COVID. And, you know, I, it was interesting to me, I, your business literally was shut down and I think still maybe shut down because of COVID. Um, that's, that's incredible. Like, I mean, how, how do you see that? You know, how do you approach like a challenge like that? Like literally your main source of income gets shut down for almost two years. Like, yeah. how do you even wrap your head around that? How do you deal with that? Because I know, like, you're just always the most positive guy. Like, how do you do that? It, it, Alan, I think I really look at life as, as there's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. And I've been riding such, um, even through hard, hard times, it comes back to adventure racing, really, is... When you put yourself in difficult situations and you come out the other side and in adventure racing, you come off of one of these races and you are tore down to your core where your ego is gone. When, when your wife is carrying your backpack because you, <laughs> because you or, or another, another teammate and then, you know, the next day you're towing that teammate. Um, when you go through experiences like, like that, that just brings you to, to your knees in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. um, real life is generally, generally pretty easy. <laughs> like <laughs> now this aside, this COVID thing in our business, um, you know, I don't dwell on the things that I can't control. If I screw something up and my business tanks, then that's on me where this is something that 
for the last two years, we've lost 97% of our, of the business. Wow. Now, um, things were, things were great. Um, and on a financial situation, things are a lot more challenging than they used to be. Right. But at the end of it, it's just money. Yeah. Because it's about happiness. Like I've got, I've got an amazing wife. I've got two amazing children. I've got great friends. I've my, my, I've got amazing family. Um, life, when you, you have to look at it and look at the things that you do have versus the things that you don't have. And there almost isn't anything like I've said when this, if my house burned down today and my family was sitting out in front of, in the street, watching everything burn to the ground, we would just come together and we would go, okay, right. What are we doing next? Let's go. Because it's just stuff. And when you can have that kind of a, a mindset that it doesn't matter what happens, you will get through and you will lean on the people that you need to lean on and you will be there for the people that need to lean on you. Um, then COVID, no COVID, money, no money. It really doesn't matter. Well, that that's a, a very inspiring outlook on things. I mean, the the positivity there, and and really the, you know, the uh, perspective on what's important. I think there's a lot to to take away from that for anybody listening. Um, do you feel that? Ha, have you always had that outlook on life, or do you feel that some of the experiences you've been through and and some of the uh, you know the growth that you've you've demanded of yourself to be able to compete, you know, at the highest levels in some of the most grueling sports in the world. Uh, Does that enhance your ability to change your perspective when, when you want to and, and reframe things in in a way that's more productive? Yeah, that those experiences certainly, certainly have done that for me for sure. Um, I think I was, I've always been a positive person, but putting myself in challenging situations has always also been something that I've, I've liked to do. Um, now I do have a, I have certainly have a bit of an ego where I don't like to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has held me back at points and getting, but getting into understanding myself and really where I want to be and how I need, what I need to do to get there. Um, and through challenging experiences has certainly allowed me to, to probably move that forward more than, than, you know, than maybe, maybe is normal. Yeah. Um, That's good, man. That's really good. You know, I, 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 I find that I, I like what you said about, yeah, I mean, the way you answered is sheep hunting easy, you know, I'm actually surprised that you said, well, to be honest, it kind of is, you know, after having been through a lot of these things. And I think that life can be like that. You know, I mean, the, the, the fact that you've had your, your business tremendously challenged by, by things outside of your control, 
Like you're going to exit this when, when things come back and you're going again, you're going to be a stronger person because of that adventure race that you did with COVID. You know, every challenge and trial we have in our lives, ultimately, if we handle them right and we have the right perspective, they can make us stronger. You know, the old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that's especially true if you choose to make it a positive instead of always looking at a negative as a negative, because really that's perspective. I mean, it's it, how, how you view something is your choice, you know, you know the, the classic, the classic cup half full or half empty yeah. is so true. It's so true. When you surround yourself with people who are positive, that in in the face of negativity, in the face of difficulty, when you spend time with people that can find the positive in a difficult situation, um, it's everybody gets lifted. Right. Everybody. Everybody comes up. And I only surround myself with people who are positive. Um, and yeah, I've got, I've got friends from, you know, from my past that, that I haven't, you know, pushed them out of my life. But at the same time, the people, people don't want to hang out with me that want, have a negative attitude. They, <laughs> they, they really don't because I'm probably annoying. Yeah. Um, but so that's why I have some really great friends that have just positive attitudes. And, and that's what I find also I find in you, Alan, like you're, you've got drive, you've got determination, you've got this tenacity, you, you have this lust for life. And it's people, I think it's people like my like-minded people really are attracted to one another. And I think what, when it's in a positive realm, you can really push each other and achieve great things together and achieve greater things than you could on your own. And that's why adventure racing was such an amazing sport for me. I was always a really, like generally speaking, a, a general good athlete. And that's why, but I really love the team atmosphere. Yeah. And when you, you know, when I'm low and I can just take a look over at, you know, whether it's my wife I'm racing with or, one of my other teammates and you can just look at them and they know what you're thinking. They know, okay, Greg needs a hand right now. Like, yeah. and, and Greg needs a, maybe I need to take some weight out of his pack or because, you know, tomorrow Greg's going to be towing me. These are the people that I like to spend my time with. And there's some great people in this, in this hunting industry. And, you know, I've got, I've got a really good team that I work with here in the Yukon. Um, on, you know, all my businesses and just, I think that we really just enjoy each other. And I think that that's the key to, to really being happy, um, in, in, in life too. just spend your time with people that are good, that are honest and that lift you up. And that's, that's where the gold is. So good, buddy. I love it. I love it. I mean, I feel lifted up from, from this podcast. I'm sure everybody listening appreciates those words because I mean, now like for the last hour, you've been part of our lives, man. And it's, it's it rubs off. So I appreciate it. Well, Greg, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. This was an amazing podcast. I loved, I loved hearing your insights on things and hearing your stories. Um, you know, uh, I hope you arrow a giant bull here in a week or two. <laughs> 
and uh and have a blast doing it and uh yeah. next year buddy i want to try to be up there with you let's figure something out so yeah it'll be uh it'll be awesome i better get to uh i better get to to practicing like you are so yeah uh, practice you know it's not everything but it helps it sure it sure does so yeah. thanks alan i appreciate you having me my friend yeah and yeah i look forward to the next time we uh we get together hopefully Hopefully it's at a show or something this winter. Yeah, hopefully. We can sit we can sit down and make plans for uh for our next moose hunt. Right on, bud. Thanks thanks for your time, Greg. Everybody at Hoyt appreciates it. Thank you. Talk to you later.